Good evening. Thank you all for coming tonight. Let's uh, pray and ask the Lord to bless our time together as we study his word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come before you tonight and we're thankful for your good gifts. We're thankful that as creator, you have blessed us with life. You have, as our redeemer, blessed us with eternal life and the privilege of being able to be called your children. Father, we ask that you would bless our time of Bible study tonight. And we pray, Father, that you would guide us into wisdom as we seek to understand more of your ways. And so, Father, uh, may your uh, may this time be profitable to us as your children. And Lord, may you be glorified and honored in it. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Tonight, we're continuing our study of Ecclesiastes, and we're moving into chapter 3, which I've entitled verses 1 through 15 of chapter 3, The Mystery of Time and Providence. And just kind of back up, help us kind of, again, catch kind of an overview of where we've been in the bigger picture of Ecclesiastes. Uh, We saw in chapter 1, verse 2, the announcement of this main theme that life in this world under the sun, as he calls it, may be characterized as hevel, that is enigmatic, mysterious, frustrating, sometimes elusive. And then the key question that is guiding his whole quest throughout the book in chapter one, verse three, where can we as human beings, or even how can we as human beings find ultimate gain or significance? In this world, Uh, chapter one, verses four through 11 is kind of an opening poem that lays out many of the themes that the book talks about. And just that the organizing theme is that life is enigmatic and frustrating. And so then seeking to address that question, where can we find gain? He answered it in chapter one, verses 12 through 18, by saying that gain cannot ultimately be found in the pursuit of wisdom at least for its own sake, with wisdom as the end goal. And you told us in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, that gain cannot ultimately be found in the pursuit of pleasure or in pursuing projects and building great things. So we can't find ultimate gain or significance there either. Last time that we were together, we saw that wisdom is better than foolishness so much better than foolishness. He said, as, as light is from darkness. But again, he reminded us that pursuing wisdom for its own sake as, as the goal, as the end in itself, will ultimately not bring gain. And then he had some preliminary advice, some counsel for us in chapter 2, verses 24 to 26, and that is to enjoy God's good gifts in this world. And he's going to repeat that idea again in this passage that we're looking at tonight. So there is enjoyment to be found in this world. Enjoy God's good gifts as our creator, but realize that if those good gifts are pursued as gain, as ultimate meaning or significance, they too will disappoint. So there are, God has blessed us with good gifts, friendships, and with uh, many of us with a spouse, with food and drink and with uh, some of the just enjoyments that this world has to offer. But if you pursue those things 
for their own sake, as the goal for your life, they're going to disappoint. So that was his preliminary advice, but he'll have more to say on that as we walk through it. And then in chapter three, he turns to the concept of time. And I think the the issue that he's dealing with in this passage is really kind of an obstacle to the pursuit of gain in this world. Going back to that original question, where can we find gain? Where can we find profit in this world under the sun? And chapter three, verses one through 15 introduces kind of an obstacle to that quest. And it really has to do with our finiteness, our limitations as human beings. And one of those limitations is that we are bound by time. We are not eternal, infinite creatures such as God. So uh, one of the recurring themes through Ecclesiastes is the concept of the brevity of life and our own mortality and the fact that we all die. In fact, we saw last week that uh, wisdom is better than folly, but still both the wise and the fool die in the end. And so part of the frustration in trying to find where this profit, where this gain, this significance can be found in this world, part of the frustration in that is that we have a limited amount of time. And also in this passage, he's going to remind us that many events, many happenings in this world are outside of our control and are ultimately under God's providence. So God is the Lord of time and the one who's providentially in control over his world. We are finite, uh, we are time bound, and we can't control everything that goes on in God's world. So those are limitations or obstacles, if you will, in our pursuit of finding real meaning, significance in this world. So he says in chapter three, verse one, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. And the next several verses are probably the most well-known of all of the verses in Ecclesiastes. In fact, uh, I think it's the birds who did a rendition of this back in the 60s, turn, turn, drawn out of this passage in Ecclesiastes. And so it's a very famous passage. But I think a lot of times people misunderstand it, at least in the context of what Solomon, Kohelet, is trying to teach us in this book. And I think one of the reasons or one of the ways that people misunderstand it and misapply it is they think that these next several verses have to do with choices that we make and making sure that we wisely choose when to do these things. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. In fact, I think what he's saying is these things that he's about to list off in a very poetic way, these are things that God ultimately controls because this is his world. And so we have to live and navigate our way in this world, realizing that all of these different events and happenings in our world are ultimately within the control of God's providence. So he says, there's a time for everything. Literally the word there for time is appointed time. 
which again points in the direction of providence, doesn't it? So usually when this word time is used, it's in the sense of a specific point on the calendar, an appointed time, a set time. He says, so there's an appointed time, a set time for everything that happens in the world. That speaks of God's providential control over events. And there's a season for every activity under the heavens. There are times, there are seasons when these things happen. And so, and again, he's, he's looking at under the heavens, which is pretty much everything in our earthly experience. And what he's going to do is he's going to list off in verses 2 through 8, a bunch of things that happen in this world uh, that, that we experience, that we live through. But what he's doing, if you'll notice this, in every single one of these, there's a pair. There's a pair, and in every single one of them, the pair is our opposites. And he does that on purpose. So he's going to talk about being born and dying. Well, that's our whole life, isn't it? That's from beginning to end. So those are opposites. And all of these pairs, they're opposites. But that's a poetic device. That's a literary poetic device. When you set out two opposites, think of them like bookends. Because when you have bookends, there's a bunch of stuff in between, isn't there? So by him saying there's a time to be born and a time to die, what he's saying is God controls both the both of the ends of that spectrum, but by implication, because of the literary device of the, the bookends, he's saying, and everything in between. So this is very much about God's providential guidance over his world, over, over which we do not have ultimate control, but God does. If you remember back in chapter one, he made this statement, what is crooked cannot be straightened. Again, reminding us that there are things that are outside of our control that are ultimately within God's providential sovereignty. So there's a set time. There's an appointed time for everything and a season where all these things happen. So he says a time to be born and a time to die. This first uh, pair opposites time to be born, a time to die in my mind proves that this whole list is not about choices we make. How many of you chose when to be born? Nobody, right? How many of you choose when to die? Typically speaking, we don't. I mean, short of suicide or something like that, we don't choose when we die. So that gives us a clue as to how all the rest of these things are to be understood. These are not necessarily things that we in wisdom have to choose when to do these things. These are things that happen in God's world over which he is providentially in control. So he is the one who decides when we're born. He is the one who has appointed a time for man wants to die, right? Hebrews 9:27. So there's a time to plant and a time to uproot. Speaking of harvest, but also in keeping with the same idea of the span of life, isn't it? Because when you plant a seed, that's like the beginning of that thing's life. When it is uprooted or plowed up from the ground, that's the end of that plant's life. 
So it's very much parallel with time to be born, time to die. And it includes the whole lifespan of that plant in between the planting and the uprooting. He says a time to kill and a time to heal. Again, another reason why it's problematic to see this list as stuff that we choose in wisdom to do. When is it wise to kill? These are opposites, aren't they? Time to kill, a time to heal. These are all things that happen within God's world and everything in between killing and healing. There's a time to tear down and a time to build. Again, this is not saying you should use wisdom on when to figure out when to build and when to tear down. No, this is just saying these are things that happen in God's world. These are things that happen. These are events that happen over which God is providentially in control. Verse four, he says a time to weep and a time to laugh. We don't necessarily always choose when it's time to weep and time to laugh, do we? Those are emotions that are often in response to events, aren't they? Over which God has control, but we don't. So there are events that happen in our lives over which God is providentially in control that make us want to laugh. There are events that happen within God's providential control of his world that make us want to cry. They're sorrowful. And parallel with that is a time to mourn and a time to dance. God's providential control over his world brings about emotional responses from us based on those events, whether it's a mournful time or a joyful time. In verse five, he says, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. And this one is, there's a lot of doubt in the commentaries about what the purpose of this is. Uh, Some have seen it just as a mundane farming reference of, you know, uh, clearing a field of stones in order to plant crops there. Uh, Others, even very old, like rabbinic Jewish commentaries on this passage suggest that it has uh, somewhat of a sexual reference to it in terms of fathering. It's hard to know for sure. But the point that he's making, again, with the opposites, is that all of these events that happen in our world are within God's control and everything in between, the opposites. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Again, those happen at different moments in time that are sometimes outside of our control. Verse six, a time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. Again, A to Z and everything in between. These are opposites. This is what stuff that happens in all of life. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. In verse 8, a time to love and a time to hate. When is it ever right to hate? So again, that's problematic for those that see this whole poem as you got to use wisdom as to when to decide to do these things. We're not supposed to hate at all. But again, love and hatred are things that happen within the world, within God's providential control of all things. A time for war and a time for peace. These are big things that happen within God's world. He's in charge of those things too, isn't he? So he's in charge from the little things like the tearing of a garment to war and peace. 
these are all things that happen within God's providential control. So who's in control of time? God is. That's kind of the main idea from this poem. God's in control of time and he's in control of all the events that happen in our world. There's an appointed time for these things in God's providence, which brings us back then to the question, where can we find gain? Chapter one, verse three. That's that uh, programmatic question that we keep coming back to in Ecclesiastes. How can we find gain? How can we find a profit from our labor, from our work, if we can't control all of these things all the time? And even just to bring it into kind of a a business commercial enterprise uh, example, you can have somebody, well, let's bring in James 4 as an example of this. Remember James 4, James says, Someone who says, hey, tomorrow, let's, uh, let's go over into this city and buy or sell and we'll get gain, right? Profit. So let's go over to this city and, and we'll exchange goods, we'll trade and, and we'll make a profit off of that. But what does James say? You fool. What you ought to say is if what? If the Lord wills, we'll go over to this city or that place and buy and sell and get a profit. So bringing that back to Ecclesiastes, there are times when we make plans and we have great plans about how to be successful, about how to get enjoyment out of life, about I'm going to do this or that and this is going to bring me joy or this is going to, I'm going to finish this project and it'll be beautiful when it's done. But there's that condition that James reminds us about if the Lord wills. Because... As Solomon is reminding us in this passage, there's an appointed time for all things. So you might invest in the stock market and you've done all of your research and you've looked at all the portfolios and you've researched this company and you've looked at it, you've looked at its financials and everything looks great. It looks like a solid company. It's had a long run of success. It looks like it's primed to grow for the future. And you invest in this company and... Tomorrow in the news, there's a scandal about something that the, one of the leaders, the CEO, did. And it's going to, and guess what happens to the stock? It goes down. You couldn't control that. You couldn't know about that in advance. So how in the world can we gain in this world if we can't control all these events? That's kind of what he's getting at in verse 9. So... The fact that we're time bound and we don't providentially control all these things presents an obstacle to finding gain and profit, satisfaction in this world. And so he says in verse 10, I've seen the burden that God has laid on the human race. It's uh, in, uh, in another place in back in chapter one, I believe he says uh, this is a toilsome burden, an unhappy business, he says. Life is challenging. Life is difficult. Life is frustrating at times. Using the word hevel, there are times when it's enigmatic. It's mysterious. It's elusive. You try to reach out for it and it's not there. But he reminds us that as a part of God's providential control over his world, he, that is God, 
has made everything beautiful in its time. So there are a couple of key words there that bring us back to verse one. For everything, there is a time and a pointed time and a season for everything under the heavens. Well, this says he has made everything beautiful in its time. Meaning that, yes, there are frustrating things that happen in this world. There are things that are elusive. There are things that are mysterious. There are things that are puzzling that we can't figure out. There are things that seem like you put your hand to the plow and you don't get anything from it. It seems futile. But he's reminding us that God has a plan and a purpose for all of these things. And he is weaving them together for ultimately that which is good and beautiful and glorious in the end. It reminds me of Romans 8.28, especially for the believer, where Paul reminds us that God is working all things together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. Again, within that all things, there are some tough things, aren't there? To use the language of Ecclesiastes, within that all things that God is weaving together, there are times to weep and there are times to dance, right? Within those all things that God is weaving together. But especially for the believer, for the Christian, those who love God called according to his purpose, he's making all things beautiful in its time. And he says he has also set eternity in the human heart. This has been a phrase that has been Uh, much written about in Ecclesiastes. What does he mean by this? I think probably the best explanation of it is that God has set within human beings a consciousness of the eternal. That is that even though we're talking about under the heavens, we're talking about under the sun, where can we find gain, profit under the sun? And we're looking at a lot of Ecclesiastes is looking at things from a limited, a finite perspective from birth to death, from our lived human experience under the heavens, under the sun. Yet he reminds us that there is this within us as creatures made in the image of God, an awareness, a consciousness that there is more than just what we can see. There is more to what God is doing than just under the heavens or under the sun. There is more to existence than just birth to death. There's something bigger. And, and this is one of the few places in Ecclesiastes and really the whole Old Testament that has a concept of the eternal beyond uh, physical death. Now, from a New Testament perspective, we as New Testament Christians having the Gospels and the writings of Paul and Revelation, we know that there is an existence for us as human beings beyond the grave, right? In Christ, there is resurrection. That concept of life after death, of resurrection, of the eternal, was not as clearly revealed in the Old Testament. It's there, 
It's right here in chapter 3, verse 11 of Ecclesiastes. But it's not all over the place like it is in the New Testament. So uh, how, how life works and is there gain and profit to be found under the sun? It's a frustrating lived experience if all you're looking at is under the sun. But because God has given us an awareness of something that is eternal, that transcends that, it can give us hope and make life not just frustrating and complex and difficult, but that there's something more that we're searching for. Yet, he says, no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So we, we have this consciousness that there's more to life than just from birth to death. There's, there's an eternal. And that God is... God is weaving all of these things in his world together for the beautiful, ultimately. But because of our limitations as human beings, we can't see how it all fits together, can we? It says no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. We, we don't have the vantage point of being able to, to sit up on top of the highest mountain peak of history, if you will, and see how it all fits together and how all the events work. Really, the best vantage point that we have for that is from the Holy Scriptures. Because in the Holy Scriptures, God shows us through his prophets and apostles that there is a grand overarching story for all of human history, from creation to the new creation in the book of Revelation. But from a just a merely human viewpoint under the sun, we can't see God's hand and how it's moving in every, all of these events that he talked about in the poem in verses two through eight. Time to be born, a time to die, a time to tear, a time to mend. We can't see how God's hand is working in all of those things. So our, our perspective is limited and finite. So back to his preliminary counsel and advice then. One thing that we could do is, well, if, if I can't control all of these things and I can't see how all this fits together, then I'm just going to give up and there's no point to anything. He says that's the wrong response. Here's his preliminary counsel. There's nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. Again, enjoy God's good gifts that he's given to us. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. So he's saying that a gift of God is coming to the realization that none of these things are ultimate. Food is not ultimate. Drink is not ultimate. Building projects is not ultimate. Pleasure is not ultimate. Even pursuing wisdom for wisdom's own sake is not ultimate. If we can realize that as a gift from God, then we can enjoy the good things that he gives us along the way, realizing that they're not the end. So we find small, limited, finite enjoyments in these things, but we don't put everything in them. We don't put our whole life in them, our meaning, our significance in them. That's a gift of God. 
to have that awareness and to have the ability to enjoy his gifts as creator. He says, I know that everything that God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. Again, I think that's speaking to God's providence, right? So what God does endures, it lasts. It is not something that can be thwarted by human plans or endeavors. And you can't really add to or take away. You can't push God to do something that he doesn't want to do in his providential plans. And why does God do all this? Why is God arranging events the way that he does? Why does he bring this event in someone's life? And why does he allow this to happen in this person's life? He says God does it so that people will fear him. To teach people of of his omnipotence and his sovereignty and his providence so that they will fear him. And he says, whatever is has already been and what will be has been before and God will call the past to account. The first part of verse 15, I think, is kind of going back to something that we looked at earlier about the circularity of life and that there's nothing really new under the sun. He told us that before. Whatever is has already been and what will be has been before. So there is a repetition. There's a circularity in life. Essentially nothing new under the sun. But over all of that, over all of human activity, over all of human history, over all of these events that happen that God is providentially in control of, he will also hold us accountable for what we do in this world. So this passage speaks much of the providence of God, I believe, and his control over the events in the world. But we also, too, have a responsibility, don't we? In how we live and move within God's world. Because God will hold us to account for what we do in his world. And that theme of of judgment, that theme of accountability, he's going to expand on as we go further into Ecclesiastes. But right now, I think for this portion that we've looked at tonight, what can we draw from it? I think there are some, some applications. One is just to remember our finiteness. That there are things that we can't control. I think a lot of times as human beings, we get, we respond with anger. We respond with frustration. We, with, we, would, we respond with great disappointment, sadness sometimes because we fall under the illusion that we think we can control these things. And when they don't happen, we get angry, we get upset, we get disappointed, we get frustrated. I think we can temper our anger, our resentment, our frustrations, if we just remind ourselves God's on the throne, God's in control. And it, it allows us to have a little bit more of an open hand with the things that happen in this world instead of holding onto them so tightly that when something doesn't go right, then we, get, then we blow up in anger. If we hold them a little bit looser and recognize that God's really ultimately in control of all these things, then we don't react so extremely 
when something doesn't go according to plan. So I, I think it's helpful to remind ourselves daily of what James 4 tells us. If the Lord wills, we'll live and do this or that. And ultimately, there are things that are outside of our control. Remind ourselves of our finiteness, our limitations. Also remember, I think he is showing us, especially in verse 11, that all that God does, he is doing for a purpose. And he's weaving these things together ultimately for what is good and beautiful. And bringing Romans 8.28 into it helps us see that, especially for God's people, he is doing something good and beautiful. And also in verse 11, just remember that in our pursuits, that there is an eternal. There's an eternal. So that Paul can say in Colossians 3.1, don't set your eyes on things below, but set your eyes on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So because there's an eternal, don't put all of our focus on the under the sun elements of our existence but he says paul says in colossians 3 look up look up remember that he has put eternity in our hearts a consciousness of the eternal especially as believers in christ with the the complete word of god and with the indwelling holy spirit we have a bigger picture of the eternal don't we and so set our eyes on that and be encouraged by that and having your eyes on the eternal helps put in perspective what happens in the under the sun aspect of our lives. Let's bow in prayer together. Father, we thank you for the privilege, the opportunity that we've had to walk through this passage of Ecclesiastes tonight. Lord, my prayer is that we would continue to grow in our understanding of how you are working in your world. And Lord, remind us, teach us from this passage tonight that you are a good creator and that you are a good providential guider of your creation. And Lord, help us to remember that we are ultimately under your care, under your providential guidance. Father, help us to seek the best. Help us to pursue the best in this world As Paul says in Philippians 4, that which is beautiful, that which is good, that which is lovely, that which is of good report, help us to think and pursue those things. Father, may we find joy and happiness in the the gifts that you give us in this world. But Lord, may we ultimately find our joy and satisfaction in you, our God, our creator, and our redeemer. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.